Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to our text as it's found in Proverbs 24.16. Proverbs 24.16. Our text reads, For a just man falleth seven times, and riseth up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. There are many foes from without and from within that would bury you, literally bury you, if they possibly could. But God, who cannot lie, has promised to those who have been justified by faith that their faith cannot utterly fail when they are attacked, even by the devil and all of his demonic forces, even when our foes may seemingly heat the furnace ten times hotter than normal. The Lord Jesus Christ comes to uphold us, to uphold our faith, that we be not consumed in that fiery furnace, in that fiery trial. Just as Christ told his disciples, you recall, before crossing the, the Sea of Galilee, he said to them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And as the boat traveled from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other side, you'll recall that a mighty storm came unto that small boat in which the disciples and Christ were in. And in the midst of that uh, storm, uh, it was so severe, even for these experienced fishermen, they were so afraid, bailing the water out as the water came in and seeing that they were losing ground, that they were sinking. They say, Lord, as, they, as the Lord sleeps through this storm, they waken him and say, Lord, don't you even care that we're perishing, that we're drowning. You see, the Lord uh, said to the storm as he arose, Peace, be still. Because he had already promised them, let us pass over to the other side. And so nothing could happen to them that would prevent them in between leaving and arriving that would prevent them, that would keep them, that would keep them from arriving to their destination, that would destroy them in the process. And so likewise, dear ones, the Lord says to us, who have been justified by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, let us pass over the sea of life and through the tempests and the storms of this life and through the valley of the shadow of death, let us pass through all of these things to the other side until you arrive at that heavenly kingdom. Though the winds of persecution and the waves of besetting sins and the fears within our own hearts may all conspire together to drown us in the raging sea of destruction, the sure word of our Savior sounds forth so clearly if we simply have ears to hear, let us pass over to the other side. Peace. Be still. Dear ones, he who brought peace to his disciples of old still continues to bring peace of mind and peace to a tormented conscience to his disciples today. For his promises are ever faithful. His promises are ever true. The Lord and His promises to us, dear ones, are immutable. They cannot change. And thus, when we hear the promise found in our text this Lord's Day, 
Let our faith be united with the power and the faithfulness of God. When our text says, For a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. All the enemies which the devil may enlist to cast us into a pit of despair and despondency, discouragement, into the mire of hopelessness, cannot, yea, it is impossible, it is impossible to keep those who are justified down in a grave that utterly devours and destroys their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They will arise to do battle another day. Though they may fall, they will rise again. They will rise again against the enemies of their soul, as certainly as the Lord Jesus Christ himself arose victoriously from that grave. Even even as Satan could not keep Christ in that grave, so Satan, in all of his power and might, cannot keep the Christian in that grave. Once he falls, he will rise again, because his Savior rose again. Perhaps, dear ones, you have been brought ever so low today, or recently, by an affliction, by the attack from others for your faith in Christ and holding to the truth, by a besetting sin in your life, by a fear, by the death of a loved one. And the enemy of your soul has tormented your conscience to such a degree that you ask, where is the Lord in such pain and sorrow? Or perhaps you ask, have I sinned away all possibility of God's grace and mercy. Where is the Lord? Lord, have you forgotten me? It's a, a continual refrain in the Scriptures. When God's people get to that level of despondency and discouragement, Lord, remember thy covenant mercies. Do not forget what thou hast promised. Dear ones, the God who cannot lie today encourages you with a promise, with a promise that will not torment you, will encourage you, but a promise that will indeed torment our enemies and a promise that will in, uh, renew our faith to soar with the eagles when it says, for a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. Let's consider together our text and look at, looking at and focusing upon two main points. The first main point, the promise is made to the just. And second, the promise is that of perseverance. The promise is made to the just uh, in our text when it says, for a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. A just man. Well, who are the just to which this proverb refers? To whom this promise is made? It is to the just and to the just alone from this text that we read that he shall, though he fall seven times, he shall rise again. First, let me tell you who the just before God are not, and then we'll consider who the just before God are. The just before God, first of all, are not those who have reached a state of perfection in this life and no longer sin. God is not speaking of sinless individuals here when he speaks of the just. Short of Jesus Christ and those glorified saints in heaven, there are none who are without sin. Not even infant children. Psalm 51.5 clearly states, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Likewise, in Ecclesiastes 7.20, For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good, and sinneth not. 
So first of all, the just are not those who have reached a state of sinlessness or perfection. Second, the just before God are not those whose good works outweigh their bad works in this life. You know, that's the popular mindset of most people today. It, it operates off of that false premise as if God has his balance, his heavenly balance. And on judgment day, if the good works outweigh the bad works, well, you're in. And if the bad works outweigh the good works, you go to the hot place, you go to hell. And uh, that's the way, again, if you talk just to anybody on the street, that's basically how most people think today. And uh, perhaps even sadly, uh, for uh, the sad state of the church, probably most people, even in the church, think that way. That's thinking, again, according to, not the covenant of grace, but according to the covenant of works. That there is something within us, something meritorious, our works, in some way, qualify us be right before God, just before God, and give us a ticket to heaven. However, dear ones, God does not grade on a curve uh, as if uh, 51% good works is a passing grade. Anything less is a failing grade. The only passing grade before an infinitely holy God is 100% good works without exception. You see, that's what the covenant of works demands. If you're going to try to work your way to heaven, find merit in yourselves in some way, you must keep the law perfectly, without failing in thought, word, or deed, in any respect. James 2.10 says, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, one single solitary point of God's law, he is guilty of all. He is guilty of breaking the whole law of God. He is liable to the same punishment of eternal condemnation in breaking one of God's commandments as if he had broken them all. Thirdly, the just before God are not those who consider themselves to be clean before God because they are sincere in what they believe or do. Mere sincerity, dear ones, is not sufficient to make one just before a holy God. For many will spend eternity in hell who are sincerely wrong, the scripture tells us in Proverbs 14.12, for there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Mere sincerity is not sufficient to make one just before God. Fourthly, the just before God are not those in whom righteousness has been infused at justification. The Romish church falsely teaches that God makes the sinner just by infusing within him faith and love, repentance, new obedience, and such graces. And on the basis of that infused righteousness or holiness or grace, God allegedly, according to Rome, says that a man is righteous before God. But the heresy of Rome's position, dear ones, is that one is considered righteous by God not on the basis of Christ's righteousness, but on the basis of man's righteousness which has been worked within him. See, we find in Romans 4-5, Paul speaking ever so clearly, but to him that worketh not... but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. You see, we have to come to the place where we recognize that we are under a covenant of works, that we deserve the just condemnation of God 
for our violation of God's holy commandments. And because of that, we reach out freely with a hand of faith. Not trusting in our faith. Not looking to our faith to save us. Not looking to our love to save us. Not looking to our repentance to save us. But looking to Christ alone to save us and His righteousness. And His obedience. And His sacrifice upon the cross. And taking upon Himself the wrath of God. Bearing the guilt of our sin. Dear ones, all of these false ways to be just before God are doomed to failure and destruction for one simple reason. They all teach that man may be just before God because of something within man or something done by man, which is the essence of a false gospel. You can identify and smell a false gospel. It's like rotting fish because it reeks of man, not of Christ. Well, let us now consider who the just before God are, as mentioned here in Proverbs 24:16. First of all, they are ungodly sinners who acknowledging and confessing the just the justness of God's sentence of eternal condemnation against them for the sin in the covenant of works. They look in faith outside of themselves to Christ in His perfect righteousness alone as their only hope of being just and right before a holy God. Those who are just before God, dear ones, look entirely outside of themselves. They don't, as I said, look to their faith. Consider faith or consider faith... uh, as an analogy of an eye. An eye does not eye its eye. It does not see the eye. The eye sees the object, but the eye does not see the eye, unless it's looking in a mirror, of course, in its sight. The eye is a faculty of looking outside of oneself. And so is faith. Faith is that grace whereby we freely receive what Christ has already accomplished for his people and is offered freely to all who hear the gospel to come and embrace that faith or that uh, to embrace that uh, gift of life and forgiveness of sin freely. So, the eye of faith does not look to our baptism as the grounds or basis of our acceptance before God. It doesn't look to our good intentions. It doesn't look to our obedience. It rather looks to Christ and His obedience, both in actively keeping all of God's holy law perfectly and in passively suffering on behalf of man, the just penalty of God's holy wrath, which man deserved. Ungodly sinners, dear ones like you and me, are once and for all forgiven all their trespasses in the judicial courts of heaven by God and imputed the absolutely perfect righteousness of Christ. And it is on the basis of that and that alone that God removes all condemnation 
not simply suspends condemnation to a later time when one falls again into that same sin that they've fallen into many times before. God doesn't suspend condemnation when those look to him, those sinners look to him, trusting in Christ alone. No, he removes condemnation. That, dear ones, is the just man, the just woman, or the just child that is here mentioned in Proverbs 24.16 when it says, For a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. Are you who are gathered here today uh, the just of whom God here speaks? The Lord calls and invites all of the ungodly, not all of the self-righteous, but all of the ungodly to come to him and to receive with open hands his freely offered righteousness. Oh, dear ones, do not your hearts today rejoice to hear the Lord declare to you, I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Matthew 9.13 Does not your heart rejoice and exult in Christ to know that even the chief of sinners is invited to come to Christ and to receive the gospel of salvation, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So I ask you today, these are the qualifications. These are the qualifications to be justified. Do you believe you're a sinner? Do you know you're a sinner? If so, you and you alone have a divine right to come to Christ that you might be just through Him and have everlasting life. Are you even, and would you even say today, as the Spirit of God works in your life, I'm even the chief of sinners? Well, dear ones, you'll not be turned away. You'll not be turned away. Remember the parable which the Lord gave to illustrate that very point between the publican, guilty of many, many sins, robbing and stealing and taking advantage like Zacchaeus of of just the poor, the helpless, rubbing their noses in the dirt in every way, hated and despised the publicans, the chief of sinners, classified along with the harlots. And in the parable, the publican and the Pharisee both come before God in the temple, the altar, in prayer. And the Pharisee tells, says in prayer, speaks of all of his works of righteousness, all the things he's done for God. And the publican can't even look up into heaven. All he can do is just put his head down and beat his chest over his awful, sinful condition and cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, it was that one that left the temple, the altar, being justified. It was that one, not the one who no doubt performed outwardly things that people would consider to be so good, incredible. But the one who acknowledged and humbled himself and said, I'm a sinner, I'm even the chief of sinners, but I reach out to Christ and his righteousness. Be merciful to me. Dear ones, you too have the same divine right to come to Christ, all of you, to come to Christ that you might be clothed with the garment of his perfect righteousness. You need not wait until you have shed enough tears to come to Christ or until you have prayed long enough or until you have beat yourself up 
for your sins long enough, all of which you all of which have no power in themselves to save you, to redeem you. If you see your need of a, a savior today, if you recognize that you are a sinner, if you recognize that even you are the chief of sinners because of what you have done in your life and you need the Lord Jesus Christ, then reach out to Him today. Come to His banquet feast. Sit at His table and He will feed you. He will feed your impoverished soul. He will feed you from that banquet feast of Christ's righteousness and love and favor that has been prepared for you by Christ. Eat and drink, dear ones, by faith. Eat and drink by faith of Christ and His righteousness and live forevermore. Come and eat of His flesh. Come and drink of His blood by faith and enjoy life everlasting. You who do so, or who have done so, are the just that are referred to here in Proverbs 24:16. For a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. The second main point is the promise. The promise is that of perseverance. In what ways does a just man fall and rise again? There are several ways that uh, come to mind. I'm going to mention three three ways in which a a just man falls and and rises again. First of all, a just man falls when attacked and laid low by enemies who hate him or hate her. Note that Proverbs 24.16 begins with the, the word in the English text for or because which means that the reason for the because must come somewhere before verse 16. So we go back to 20, chapter 24, verse 15 of Proverbs, and it says, Lay not wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Spoil not his resting place. Why? For a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. Thus we see that the very context tells us that enemies to our faith in Christ or to our practice of the truth in our families and in our church, in our country, in our neighborhood, in our workplace, or even on the internet, will seek to devour our faithful testimony and witness for the truth of Christ. But although such attacks may discourage or dishearten us, and may dishearten the the just man or the just woman. They cannot and they will not bury him once and for all. God will use even such attacks to raise him or her up, to persevere in standing for the truth. So often is the case that we learn to stand up again because we've been knocked down. And we've been knocked down. But we learn the longer we stay down, the harder it is to get up again. And so the thing to do when we're knocked down is not to stay there. Not to lick our wounds. Not to feel sorry for ourselves. Not to be vindictive toward those who have knocked us down. But in the grace and power of God to rise up again. As soon as we're knocked down, we're back up by God's grace. God will use even such attacks, dear ones, to teach us perseverance. That He's the one who causes us to get up again. Because it says here in verse 16, But the wicked shall fall into mischief. There's nothing said about the wicked getting up again. They're knocked down and they fall into mischief. It's the just man 
who rises up again, though knocked down seven times. Just some biblical illustrations of this truth. Very quickly. David, you'll recall, had uh, many times uh, been persecuted and had to flee for his life. Persecuted by Saul. Uh, persecuted uh, by his own son Absalom and many others for his faith in the Lord and for his practice of the truth. When trapped in caves or surrounded by enemies on various occasions, at that precise time, when David appeared to have fallen into a grave and fallen into the hands of his enemies, and his testimony for the truth appeared to be completely silenced. He arose, as it were, out of the jaws and the clutches of his enemies to proclaim again the faithfulness of God in delivering him from their evil schemes and plots and designs. God raised David up seven times to persevere in trusting him for deliverance. Remember also the attempt of Joseph's brothers to bury Joseph literally in a pit and then thinking otherwise to sell him into slavery, believing that rather than killing him, they would simply silence his testimony for the truth, be forever silenced to to send him off to Egypt into slavery. They'd never hear of his testimony anymore. Well, God raised Joseph out of the pit of death. God brought him out of, the, out of bondage and slavery. And out of the despair of that prison cell and placed him upon the throne of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God did not allow Joseph's enemies, even though within his own family, to quench that divine gift of perseverance granted to Joseph. Or another illustration. What about that justified woman, Hannah, who was persecuted day in and day out by her adversary and rival, Peninnah, who ridiculed Hannah because, not because she had sinned, not because she was uh, standing for that which was wrong and evil, but ridiculed her because she had no children. Made fun of her. Scorned her. Made her life absolutely miserable because God had not opened her womb. The Lord did not leave her, did not leave Hannah to the evil designs of her rival and persecutor, but raised her from that pit and gave her a heart of persevering prayer and thanksgiving. The Lord himself graciously, you recall, rewarded Hannah with three sons and two daughters. Or remember the scheme of wicked Haman who sought to bury Mordecai, or actually hang him, built a scaffold because uh, Mordecai would not bow down and acknowledge the greatness of Haman. He would not treat him in the way that he thought he should be treated. And so Haman not only sought to hang Mordecai upon the uh, from the rope, but also sought to destroy all of the Jews in the various provinces of Persia. But God again raised Mordecai from the plot of wicked Haman and gave Mordecai the grace of perseverance so that he did not forsake the Lord even if it appeared that he and all his people might be destroyed. God rather brought, as we read the account in the scripture, the book of Esther, God rather brought the same mischief and plots and plans which Haman had designed against Mordecai 
and the Jews upon Haman's own head. And we can never forget the plot of the Jews to crucify and to bury Jesus Christ, and to bury and to silence his words of life in that tomb. But with resurrection power and glory, he arose, signifying he was the Son of the living God, signifying his payment for sin was sufficient for all of God's elect, God's people, signifying that no punishment for sin could ever touch the just man, the just woman, the just child. And finally signifying that the sting of death, the sting of death itself had been removed for all those who are justified. You'll recall one other example, how it appeared that the disciples themselves were buried when they fled the persecution when Christ was betrayed by Judas and Peter even denied knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not the end of the story. We find on the day of Pentecost some 50 days later that though they had fallen there they stood victoriously having been raised up again preaching boldly, willing to suffer whatever the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, might bring against them, willing to stand. How did they get back up? How did they get have such boldness after having fled for their lives a little over a month before, previously? Well, because the just man falleth seven times. But he raiseth up. God raises him up again. Dear ones, we ourselves may be called, even as we find the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, to endure great persecution for our faith. And even as in that particular portion of Scripture, they are put to death, those two witnesses. Their testimony is silenced for three days. Yet, the Lord, in that prophetic portion of God's Word, causes them to come alive again. Come to life again. And they come to life again, I would submit to you, in the testimony of succeeding generations. That God does not leave his testimony buried with his faithful martyrs for the truth. That God always, through martyrdom, raises up even more a faithful remnant and a multitude and a mighty army to stand for his truth. Therefore, let the wicked hear and listen to Almighty God. Let the wicked know that their time is coming. Let the wicked know that they cannot bury the just man, that they will fail to keep the just man, just woman, just child in the grave. No matter if they seek to bury them seven times, the Lord will cause them to rise again. Herein is the victory that is promised to the justified man, woman, and child and the doom of the wicked who would seek to silence them. The doom stated, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. That's their doom. Not only temporal mischief, but everlasting mischief in hell. And even, dear ones, if we do not experience literal violence at the present time, even if those who oppose us seek to silence us and seek to bury our testimony for the truth, 
Some may do so by misrepresenting what we believe and practice. Some seek to silence us by calling us uncharitable or ungodly names. Some do so by bringing division and schism within the church, by sowing dissension and discord among brothers and sisters. We do not have to respond in vengeance, personal vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Always remember, dear ones, the duty is ours. The consequences are God's. Ours is simply to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember we the sermon from a few weeks ago that those that man whose ways are pleasing unto the Lord that God makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And so the condition is not are you trying to get even with those who persecute you? then God makes your enemies to be at peace with you. The condition to that promise is, are your ways pleasing to the Lord? And so that's our focus. Are our ways pleasing to the Lord? Not how can we get even with others? What nasty names can we call them because they have called us nasty names? That's, that's not the issue at all. That's a sin on our part. So we're not only brought down, we fall by way of our enemies. A second way in which a just man falls, though it's not especially or specifically stated in the text, is that a just man falls when laid low by various afflictions, physical afflictions, that may come into his life, as in the case of Job. Job was buried in the grave of pain and sorrow and fear over the physical affliction brought into his life through Satan's evil design and yet by God's holy decree. Satan fought to take away Job's beloved children, Job's immense wealth, and finally Job's good health, and thus bring Job into the pit of despair to curse God and die. But the Lord raised Job up and granted to him in the midst of his loss of children and wealth and health a perseverance that would not allow him to curse the Lord and die. In fact, our gracious God blessed Job more abundantly, the scripture says, in his latter days than he had in his former days. Dear ones, although you seem buried with chronic pain, with the loss of a loved one, with the loss of your job, the Lord will raise you up. He will give you the grace of perseverance even when it seems as though you cannot take another step or go another day. Just as Job seemed buried in his affliction but was raised up in perseverance, so the Lord will do for you. I might note that Job was certainly not faultless during his trial and afflictions as we read that particular portion of Scripture. However, he was granted perseverance. He was granted perseverance. God did not suffer Job to fall away into perdition. He did not suffer Satan to destroy Job's faith. Though Job's faith was no doubt tried Severely, that was one thing that God would not allow Satan to touch was Job's faith in the Lord. God did not allow Job to forsake the Lord his God due to his discouragement, fear, or doubts, which were many as we read through Job. Here was the seed of faith although buried, seemingly buried at times in our lives, as it was in Job's, was well alive and lived by God's grace. 
Thus the Lord promises to those who are justified by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. For the just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. And then thirdly, a just man may fall when ensnared by besetting sins in a tormenting conscience. What better example of such a fall than the fall of Peter in denying the Lord Jesus Christ? Peter, one of the inner three of Christ's beloved disciples. Peter, who had witnessed the power of Christ in his miracles, who had stood and testified on behalf of all the disciples when asked whether they would also forsake the Lord as many other disciples had done. We read just earlier from John chapter 6, Peter replied, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, dear ones, was a leader among the apostles of Christ, and yet he fell flat on his face and terribly denying the Lord in whom he believed, in whom he loved. Although he proudly proclaimed just a few days before that he would never forsake the Lord, that if everyone else denied him, he wouldn't deny him. If no one else was willing to die for the Lord, he would be willing to die for the Lord, to suffer for the Lord. And yet he is the very one that Satan laid hold of demanded permission from God to sift like wheat. Jesus prophesied to Peter even that that was what was going to happen to Peter in Luke 22, verses 31 through 32. But in prophesying what Satan would do to Peter, the Lord also encourages Peter and says, when thou art converted, in other words, when thou art returned and restored, go forth and strengthen thy brethren. It wasn't if thou art converted, if maybe thou art converted, if possibly thou art converted, but when thou art converted, when thou hast been restored, when thou hast been raised up again, though thou hast fallen, go and strengthen thy brethren. Use what you have gone through to be an encouragement to others. To strengthen them. That God is ever faithful and ever true. The God who upholds the universe would uphold Peter's faltering faith. Peter would rise again in perseverance and go forth from that fall to encourage and strengthen his brethren. That wasn't the only time that Peter fell. Though I won't go into any great detail at this time, Peter fell again approximately 20 years later when he compromised the gospel of Christ by separating himself from eating with the Gentiles and said, in effect, by eating only with the Jews that you had to become a Jew to become a Christian. You had to become a Jew to become a Christian. You have to follow these dietary laws and you've got to follow these dietary laws. You've got to follow all of the law of the Old Testament, the, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament in order to be justified, to be right with God, to have fellowship with Christ and with his brethren. So he denied in practice even the gospel of Christ. He fell again, but he arose. As Paul rebuked him, he arose again by God's grace. Never forget that Paul himself was one who struggled with certain sins in Romans 7. Specifically, he mentions the sin of lust, concupiscence. And he says, the things that I would do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I do do. This was the Apostle Paul after being converted. How long that persisted in the same way, to the same degree, we're not told, but Paul struggled in those areas and cried out for victory in his life. Paul may have fallen seven times in that area, 
but the Lord again raised him up to be a mighty apostle for Jesus Christ. It's not only to Peter, it's not only to Paul, it's not only to Job or David or anyone else who fell in the scripture the promise is made, made. It's made to the just man, to the justified man, to the justified woman, and to the justified child. For the just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. And so I ask, in conclusion, what's your besetting sin, dear justified child of God? Have you become so discouraged that you have felt that death would be better than the torment of this sin in your life? To be continually badgered throughout the day with those temptations? To fall to have to just repent, to fall again, to have to repent? Have you almost despaired of forgiveness or eternal life due to a particular sin? You who are justified in Christ Jesus, dear ones, are forever, forever beyond the reach of God's condemning wrath. For that wrath has forever been satisfied in Jesus Christ. The law of God cannot condemn you. The law of God cannot condemn you. Certainly you are guilty, even now, for sin. But it cannot condemn you and judge you to hell because Christ has borne the just condemnation of God for those who are justified. You know, that's why I spend so much time in sermons addressing issues like this. Speaking of justification, for dear ones, there can be no real sanctification and growth in your life if you do not understand the glories of justification. You'll continue be, continually being go, uh, be going back to square one. Continually going back to the first steps, to those basic principles. Not growing and building on those principles, but going back starting all over again. And so it's very important that we learn and grow and love and appreciate and give thankfulness and thanksgiving to God every day for our justification so that we can grow in sanctification. That each day we renew our covenant with the Lord and reach out with a hand of faith and Take hold of our Savior and His righteousness. Dear beleaguered Christian, you will only overcome those besetting sins in your life as you grow in your knowledge of the perfection of your justification and perseverance in faith graciously granted to you in Christ Jesus. I urge you today, confess your sin. Grieve and sorrow over your sin, your offense against a most holy and yet a most merciful and loving God. But dear ones, do not remain. Do not remain in that state of grief and sorrow. Arise from that grief and sorrow to praise and thank the Lord who causes you to arise even when you fall seven times into that sin. Seven times in that sin in the same day. It is no excuse granted to continue in sin. We do not sin that grace may abound. But dear ones, your victory is assured in Christ who has already overcome that sin by his death and his resurrection. You are legally dead to that sin through your union with Jesus Christ by faith. That sin may still be part of your corrupt nature, but legally you are justified, declared righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness. And it's true. Absolutely true. And nothing can change that fact. And you are legally dead to sin by your union with Jesus Christ. Legally dead and legally alive to righteousness. 
legally alive to Jesus Christ. That's the verdict. And nothing can change that verdict in heaven. That's what our faith continues to look to. Though this condition is sad and deplorable, the corruption within us, we grow weary and it's exhausting. We continue to look to the verdict in heaven and lay hold of that verdict in heaven. We are justified through faith in Jesus Christ. We are declared righteous. And that we are dead to, Christ, uh, dead to sin and alive to righteousness. And dear ones, remember, it's not the size of your faith that is able to lay hold of that verdict in heaven. Again, even the Jesus says, that faith that is the size of a mustard seed is able to move mountains. It's not the size of your faith. It is indeed the object of your faith. Laying hold of Christ, however small, however great, whatever the size of your faith, laying hold of Christ and His righteousness and that verdict that is declared in heaven concerning all those who trust in Him. Amen. Let us stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, it is with boldness and confidence that we approach the throne of grace because, indeed, as Thy children, we have been declared righteous on the basis of Christ's obedience received by faith alone. Looking outside of ourselves, not looking within ourselves, not looking, Lord, to anything we have done or could do, but looking only to what Christ has already accomplished and laying hold of the Lord Jesus Christ and hearing by faith that verdict that we are righteous in Christ. Hearing that verdict that we are dead to that besetting sin and to all sin and that we are legally, according to that verdict, in heaven made alive unto righteousness through our union with Jesus Christ. How we praise Thee and thank Thee, O God, for Thy rich and glorious promises. And so, O Lord, though we who are justified fall seven times, we shall rise again. The wicked who fall, they fall into mischief and do not rise. O Lord, we pray that this might be an encouragement to us not to lie in the dust, not to remain in the tomb, but, O God, too quickly, by Thy grace, to be stirred within the the inner man, to pray, O God, to Thee, to confess our sin, to grieve over our sin, but to lay hold of the promise of God that we might be brought into that place of fellowship and communion with Thee again. We ask, Lord, that Thou would hear us through Christ our Mediator today. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail 
at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.